I went through my files and I couldn't find that I have ever brought a Thanksgiving message per se. I'm not sure why, but I couldn't find any. So I'm going to do that this morning. We've been in Nehemiah, but we're taking a, uh, a break and uh, bringing something that's more pertinent to this weekend. Um, this is going to be the longest introduction I've ever done to a message. It's historical, not hysterical, historical. And um, I hope it makes some sense. The first documented Thanksgiving feast in this pre-United States region was conducted under the auspices of Spaniard conquistador Francisco Vasquez de Coronado. Coronado and 1,500 of his men celebrated a Thanksgiving feast in 1541. But the Thanksgiving celebration, as we understand it, started in the 17th century with a group of people called the Pilgrims. The Pilgrims were religious separatists who had left the Church of England because of theological disagreement and had then immigrated to Holland. But after just over a decade there, those pilgrims returned to England and then decided to sail to what turned out to be the New England region of this nation. On September 16, 1620, exactly 102 passengers boarded a ship called the Mayflower and prepared to cross the Atlantic Ocean. It was an extremely dangerous journey and took them just over two months. 65 days to be exact. The original destination was supposed to be Virginia, but instead the ship landed hundreds of miles north at what is now Provincetown, Massachusetts. That was on November 21st. In December, the ship crossed the bay to what is called Pilgrim Rock or Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts. During that time, 41 men from aboard that ship signed a document called the Mayflower Compact. That document, the Mayflower Compact, became the basis of government in the Plymouth Colony and at a subsequent date it influenced the formation of the United States government. That first winter was devastating as there wasn't enough uh, food, there wasn't adequate housing, and in just a matter of months more than half of those original pilgrims had died. Most people don't know this, but the captain of the Mayflower was a man named Christopher Jones. On April 5th, 1621, Captain Jones decided he'd had enough of the hardships uh, there, and he'd returned to England. He tried to convince other settlers to go with him, but absolutely no one wanted to go because those pilgrims were committed to starting another life on this continent. And we should be grateful they did, or we might not be here. The pilgrims actually held a three-day feast of thanksgiving and praise to God after their first harvest in 1621. Squanto and his Native American friends joined them. And then in 1623, Plymouth Colony's governor, William Bradford, made the first Thanksgiving proclamation. This was that proclamation. Inasmuch as the Great Father, meaning God, has given us this year an abundant harvest of Indian corn, wheat, peas, beans, squashes, and garden vegetables, and has made the forest to abound with game, and the sea with fish and clams, and inasmuch as he has protected us 
from the ravages of the savages, has spared us from pestilence and disease, has granted us freedom to worship God according to the dictates of our own conscience. Now I, your magistrate, do proclaim that all ye pilgrims with your wives and ye little ones do gather at ye meeting house on ye hill between the hours of nine and twelve in the daytime on Thursday, November 29th in the year of our Lord, 1623 and the third year since ye pilgrims landed on Pilgrim Rock. Gather there to listen to ye pastor and render thanksgiving to ye almighty God for all his blessings. I guess I am ye pastor. I just, <laughs> pretty much. It's interesting that the times were so difficult and so troublesome in the Plymouth colony that the earliest pilgrims had seven times more graves than houses. Still, those families in the middle of all of that, set aside a specific time to be grateful. It is said different days of Thanksgiving were celebrated on a sporadic basis until in 1789, President George Washington issued a proclamation of a nationwide day of Thanksgiving. He made this declaration, listen to these words, whereas it is the duty of all nations to acknowledge the providence of Almighty God, to obey His will, to be grateful for His benefits, and humbly to employ His protection, aid, and favor. Now, therefore, do I assign and recommend Thursday, the 26th day of November next, that we may then all unite in rendering unto God our sincere and humble thanks for His kind care and the protection of the people of this country, and for all the great and various favors he has been pleased to confer upon us. Those words were from our first president. A woman named Sarah J. Hale also deserves credit for helping establish, establish Thanksgiving as a national holiday. Sarah Hale was the founder and editor of a woman's magazine uh, called The Ladies Magazine. She also authored the famous poem, Mary Had a Little Lamb. Most people don't know that. In miscellaneous editorials and letters, she sent to different U.S. presidents over a period of three decades. She strongly urged them to establish Thanksgiving as an ongoing national holiday. But none of them, none of those presidents responded until President Lincoln did in 1863. And he proceeded to proclaim the last Thursday of November as the National Day of Thanksgiving. That proclamation, as we're going to see, had strong religious content, and it was issued at an extremely depressing period during the Civil War. The Union armies had lost battle after battle and suffered massive casualties throughout the first part of that conflict. But even during those extremely difficult times, Lincoln felt the need to call the nation to prayer with a degree of optimism and genuine thankfulness. This is that proclamation from Lincoln. The year that is drawing toward its close has been filled with the blessings of fruitful fields and healthful skies. To these bounties, which are so constantly enjoyed, that we are prone to forget the source from which they come. Others have been added, which are of so extraordinarily a nature that they cannot fail to penetrate and soften the heart, which is habitually insensitive to the ever-watchful province of Almighty God. No human counsel has devised 
or hath any mortal hand worked out these great things. These, they are the gracious gifts of the Most High God, who while dealing with us in anger for our sins, has nevertheless remembered mercy. Google uh, President Biden's Thanksgiving proclamation from this past Thursday. Read that proclamation and compare his words to Mr. Lincoln's. Lincoln's proclamation was God-centric. Our current president's was not. That amazing proclamation came at a critical time in Lincoln's personal journey, his spiritual journey. Just three months earlier, the Battle of Gettysburg had been fought and resulted in 51,000 casualties. 23,000 Union soldiers died in that battle that lasted just three days. 28 Confederate soldiers died. One-third of General Lee's army died in that battle. It was as Mr. Lincoln walked among the thousands of graves at Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, that something significant transpired in him. Mr. Lincoln often spoke in public using religious imagery and the sort of biblical language a Christian would use. We just read some of that in his proclamation. So I've been curious for the longest time, and I've done research to determine if, in fact, President Lincoln ever committed himself to Jesus Christ. I've never been able to determine that with any degree of certainty until I received an article from what I believe is a reliable historical source. That article quotes the president in a personal letter to a clergyman in Illinois. Listen to these words from Mr. Lincoln. When I left Springfield, meaning when he left his home in Springfield, Illinois, hoping I just heard that home a month and a half ago, when he left his home in Illinois to assume the presidency, I might add he never returned, he was assassinated in office, when I left Springfield, I asked the people to pray for me. I was not a Christian. When I buried my son, the severest trial of my life, I was not a Christian. But when I went to Gettysburg and saw the graves of thousands of our soldiers, I then and there consecrated myself to Christ. Let me repeat that. That statement reading that brought me to tears. Lincoln said, when I went to Gettysburg, and saw the graves of thousands of our soldiers, I then and there consecrated myself to Christ. If that letter is authentic, and, and I understand it, it's possible it isn't, I have every reason to believe it is, but if it isn't, if it is though I have reason to believe now, I'm going to meet Mr. Lincoln in person and in heaven. And that excites me. Some people though have an entirely different perspective on Thanksgiving. Some people think or see Thanksgiving as a celebration of the conquest and genocide of the Native Americans by the earliest European colonists. Black Lives Matter just tweeted a Thanksgiving tweet, quote, you are eating dry turkey and overcooked stuffing on stolen land. Colonization never ended. It just became normalized. Since 1970, the leftist organization called the United American Indians from New England have been accusing the United States of fabricating the Thanksgiving account and whitewashing a supposed genocide and injustice against the indigenous Indian people. That accusation has resulted in a national day of mourning protest on Thanksgiving at 
Plymouth Rock, Massachusetts, in the name of social equality. Another activist organization called AIM, A-I-M, the American Indian Movement, also holds a negative opinion on Thanksgiving and has used it as a platform of protest. Since 1975, some, not all, a percentage though, some Native Americans hold a unthanksgiving day and use that time to mourn the death of their ancestors. I admit there is undeniable historical evidence that the United States government has committed some serious injustices against the Native American Indian populations. Intellectual honesty forces us to admit that. One example, President Andrew Jackson, in my opinion, not a good man, facilitated the forced relocation of Native American Indians. Some of us have heard of the Trail of Tears that happened after the Indian Relocation Act of 1830. It was the forced removal of some 46,000 Indians from five basic Indian nations, Cherokee, Muscogee Creek, Seminole, Chickasaw, and Choctaw. Those Indian groups were forcibly relocated from the southeastern part of the U.S. to, quote, Indian territory, which is now considered to be parts of Oklahoma. During that move, those Indians suffered from exposure, disease, and starvation. Thousands of them died. The U.S. government then annexed more than 25 million acres of traditional ancestral homeland that those Indians had been forced to vacate. It's interesting, descendants from some of the survivors from that relocation claimed that this phrase, the Trail of Tears, was a reference to the tears of those white people that witnessed the sufferings of those marchers en route to Oklahoma, but that the Indians themselves marched on in silence. That sort of human injustice and human rights violation is wrong, utterly wrong, and we ought to be ashamed of that part of our past. So I'm not going to argue that the United States government hasn't been unfair to its indigenous Indian population, because it has. But secular progressives and liberals argue that the first Thanksgiving celebration was just a pretext for that unfairness. Pretext means an alleged motive or appearance that is assumed in order to hide someone's real and true intentions. The radical left argues that the first Thanksgiving was just a pretext or an alleged celebration in order to hide the real intent, and that was to ultimately practice the bloodshed, enslavement, and displacement of Native Americans that would transpire in subsequent decades. People, that is an urban legend. It literally has a mythical status. From the beginning, Governor Bradford, from this emerging Plymouth colony, related how the pilgrims and Indians made a binding peace agreement between them that included six agreed-upon things. One, that neither group, neither those pilgrims and or Indians, would harm one another. Two, that anyone who does, not, who does cause harm would be held accountable. And there are historical sources um, that can document that happening. Three, that neither group would steal from one another. And if anything that was stolen, would be returned. Four, 
that the pilgrims and Indians would become military allies, protecting one another in instances of attack. Actual allies. Five, that neighboring confederates would also be welcome to join in that same peace agreement with them. And then number six, when the groups would meet together, both sides would be unarmed. Both sides would be unarmed, minimizing a hostile uh, interaction. Both parties honored that peace accord, and it remained unbroken for more than a half a century after that first Thanksgiving. It was not until 1675 that that beginning peace accord was broken. But it wasn't broken by the pilgrims. It was broken by King Philip from the Wananagag tribe who declared war on the colonists. His actual name was Metacomet, but the English called him King Philip. His evil actions were first carried out against his own people because they had remained close friends to the colonists. It's interesting that the colonists hesitating in defending themselves, hesitating in going to war against Metacomet or Philip and his warriors. The decision to fight them and defend themselves was made only after massacres occurred at eight different towns during a period of three months. During those massacres, uh, colonial children were burned alive in their homes and their parents were subjected to cannibalistic, ritualistic torture. It is said that Metacomet's war against the colonies per capita might have been the bloodiest and costliest war ever fought on U.S. soil or on this continent. And it was that singular conflict that changed the interpersonal relations between the settlers and the Indians, and things started deteriorating after that. But understand that celebrating Thanksgiving is not the same as endorsing the injustices the U.S. government has done to the Native American population since the pilgrims. That documented abuse is a matter altogether separate from the original Thanksgiving celebration. Not long after reaching New England, the pilgrims were shocked to meet an Indian named Samuset. Samuset. He could communicate with them because he learned some English from fishermen and traders. Samuset then introduced them to his friend Squanto. Squanto is probably a familiar name. Squanto moved in with the pilgrim colonists, and we are told he ultimately accepted the Christian faith. Squanto, more than anyone else, taught the first settlers how to fish and hunt and raise crops. Governor Bradford described Squanto as, quote, a special instrument sent of God for our good, and he never left us until he died. The beginning relationship between the colonists and those indigenous people native to that area was so harmonious that the first Thanksgiving celebration consisted of 50 pilgrims and 90 Indians. Understand that no matter what some historical revisionist or some radical activist or some leftist Marxist professor might tell us, the fact is our founding fathers started celebrating Thanksgiving in order to give thanks unto God who had blessed them above all measure and who was still responsible for everything good we are and everything good that we have. If God had said something once in Scripture, that's important. 
if God has repeated himself and made the same exact statement a second time, it's even more important. And if God said the same exact something four times in the same text, then we cannot afford to ignore what he said. Notice Psalm 107, starting at verse 8. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 15. Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Verse 21, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. There's a pattern here starting. Um, verse 31, Oh, that men would give thanks to the Lord for his goodness and for his wonderful works to the children of men. Let me pull out from these verses just three basic principles uh, that I think are helpful. Principle one, gratitude is to first be directed toward God. Gratitude, thankfulness, is to first, above all else, be directed toward God. Notice each verse we just read from Psalm 107 said, Oh, that men would give thanks. Give thanks to who? To the Lord. Psalm 50, verse 14 reads, Offer to God thanksgiving. Psalm 105, Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Now, don't misunderstand this. Because I also believe we should thank the human mediators of divine goodness, meaning that if someone else does something favorable toward us, then we should thank that person for that gesture. I thank people as often as possible. If a cashier hands me change, I thank them. If another driver motions me to go first at an intersection, I wave and mouth, thank you. If someone opens the door for me, I thank them. At the restaurant, when a server brings me the menu, I thank him. Each time he refills my glass, I thank him. When he brings out the entree, I thank him. And I'm careful to put on the table a gratuity or tip of at least 18%, and most often more than that, in order to demonstrate to him that my gratitude was more than just words. I'm learning to be grateful for even the slightest favor directed toward me through texting, emailing, cards, letters, and most often audible verbal thank yous. But although we are to be considerate enough to thank those individuals that have been a blessing to us, understand that those persons are not the ultimate source of that blessing. The ultimate source of all blessing would be God himself. And we must not forget to thank him first. Second, gratitude is a decision. Gratitude is a decision. Notice that each verse from Psalm 7, 107 we just read, begins, Oh, that men. Now, this is not gender specific. Uh, this means both men and women. Oh, that mankind. Oh, that human beings. Oh, that people would, notice, would give thanks to the Lord. Notice that these verses do not read, oh, that men could <coughs> give thanks to the Lord. <coughs> Those verses don't read that. Because the word could give someone freedom to actually blame God if the situation he finds himself in is so bad, he feels that he cannot be thankful. <coughs> but this verse doesn't read could. It reads, would. So the choice is ours. Oh, that men would. 
means God made us with the capacity to be grateful. So being grateful is a deliberate, purposeful, intentional, conscious decision. It's a decision just as getting out of bed this morning was a decision. It is a decision just as getting dressed was a decision. It is a decision just as attending church was a decision. One of the most famous lines from world literature is from 1602 from Shakespeare's play Hamlet. This is from Hamlet, Act 3, Scene 1. It was the opening phrase, and all of us have heard this phrase, to be or not to be, that is the question. That question focused on human existence and Hamlet's own human existence. Prince Hamlet bemoaned the unfairness of life, but then he acknowledged that the alternative, death, and in particular suicide, might relieve him of human suffering. But ignoring that question's original context, let me rephrase that, to be or not to be. The question we must answer is, to be grateful or not to be grateful? That is the question. So how do we choose? Notice the first word in these verses is O. That one syllable word, O, tells us something important is about to be said. Oh, 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 don't miss this. Don't miss this. Oh. There's a sense of passion in that word, O. Because that injunction to be grateful has important implications. Notice the principle on the note sheet. Gratitude is the attitude that determines our altitude. I didn't create that. I stole it, but I don't remember where. Gratitude is the attitude that determines our altitude. Grateful people have more potential to succeed. Negative, pessimistic, chronic, complaining types and depressed people, not so much. Grateful people have more emotional stability, less alcohol and drug problems, less depression, almost no suicide statistics, fewer divorces, and much higher marital satisfaction. In general, grateful people have better interpersonal relationships, better health, better grade point averages, more earning potential, and a higher happiness quotient. Gratitude is the attitude that determines our altitude. So we should decide, decide to be a grateful person. Number three, gratitude is based on fact, not feeling. Gratitude is based on fact, not feeling. Notice in each verse we read from Psalm 107, we were instructed to give thanks to God for His goodness. And then the second phrase reads, and for His wonderful works. Notice though God's wonderful works, these amazing actions and deeds from God are just an extension of His goodness. Psalm 25 verse 8, good and upright is the Lord. Psalm 33 verse 5, the Lord is full of the goodness. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Psalm 34 verse 8, O taste and see that the Lord is good. Psalm 52 verse 1, the goodness of God endures continually. Psalm 86 5, for you Lord are good and ready to forgive. Psalm 100 verse 5, for the Lord is good. Psalm 107 verse 1, O give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. Psalm 119 verse 68, You, meaning God, are good. Psalm 145 verse 7, 
They shall utter the memory of your great goodness. Verse 9 reads, The Lord is good to all. There's much more commentary on divine goodness mentioned throughout the Psalms. But we get the point. God is good. God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. No matter what is happening. If the walls are caving in around us, if our feet are are being knocked out from underneath us, if things are going from bad to worse, it doesn't matter. God is still good. And how often do we forget that? Remember Job. If you're ever having a bad day, just read Job. You'll feel better. (laughs) Job had received a message. His seven sons and three daughters, meaning all of his offspring, had all died in a house that collapsed during a storm. Job also had 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen. Since a yoke connects two animals together, that's 1,000 oxen and 500 female donkeys. All of Job's livestock and all the servants that cared for them died in raids from differing neighbor people groups or from fire that fell from heaven. Overnight, Job literally went from being considered the greatest of all the people of the East to losing all that he had, except Mrs. Job. And trust me, Mrs. Job wasn't an asset. (laughs) It is extremely difficult for us to be able to relate to Job. It is extremely difficult, if not impossible, for us to be able to relate to a loss that severe. But notice how Job reacted to those announcements. Verse 20, Then Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell to the ground. Those are manifestations of his intense grief and sadness. He fell to the ground, and what did he do there? And worshipped. Verse 21, And said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Verse 22, In all this, meaning all that Job, in all that Job had suffered, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Job admitted that at birth he had nothing. And at his death, he would once more have nothing. And all that he would ever have in between birth and death, all that he would ever accumulate in his lifetime, would be a gift from God. And the reason he would have those gifts and have those gifts in excess was because God is good. Rick Warren said, Being envious is resenting God's goodness to others and ignoring God's goodness to me. Being envious of someone or what someone else has is resenting God's goodness to that person and ignoring God's goodness to me. The book Robinson Crusoe, printed in 1719, is considered an all-time classic. And please don't misunderstand, in using these examples of literature, don't get the impression that I'm an expert in English literature. I am not. Um, But this is thought-provoking. Robinson Crusoe is a fictional autobiography about a castaway named Robinson Crusoe, who after being shipwrecked spent 28 years stranded on a remote tropical island near Trinidad. He endured much hardship there and even cannibals before ultimately being rescued. 
Robinson Crusoe illustrates that gratitude is based on facts, not personal feelings. Listen to just part of his journal entry. I now began to consider seriously my condition and the circumstances I was reduced to. I drew up the state of my affairs in writing to deliver my thoughts from daily pouring upon them and afflicting my mind. As my reasoning now began to master my despondency, I began to comfort myself as well as I could and to set the good against the evil that I might have something to distinguish my case from the one that is much worse. So I stated it very impartially like a debtor and a creditor, the comforts I enjoyed and the miseries I suffered. I'm going to categorize the list Crusoe presented and proceeded to write as feelings and facts. Crusoe's personal feelings and then the actual facts of the matter. Notice his feelings. I am cast upon a horrible desert island void of all hope of recovery. The fact was that I am alive and not drowned as all of my ship's company was. His feelings. I am singled out and separate as it were from all the world to be miserable. The fact was, but I am singled out too from all of the ship's crew to be spared from death. God, who miraculously saved me from death, can deliver me from this condition also. His feelings, I have not clothes to cover me. But the fact is, but I am in a hot climate where if I had clothes, I could not wear them. His feelings, I am without any defense or means to resist any violence of man or beast. The fact was, but I am cast on an island where I see no wild beasts to hurt me, as I saw on the coast of Africa. What if I had been shipwrecked there? And then his feelings, I have no soul to speak to or relieve me. The fact was, but God wonderfully sent the ship in near enough to the shore that I have gotten out so many necessary things as will either supply my wants or enable me to supply myself even as long as I live. Robinson Crusoe illustrates that our attitudes are determinations we make about how we're going to think. Our attitudes are determinations made in our mind about how we are going to think. Those determinations should be based on facts, objective truth, not on personal feelings. Feelings are fickle. Feelings change. Facts do not. And the fact is that in every possible situation we find ourselves in, there is still something we can be thankful for. If everyone in this room, if we conducted this experiment, if everyone in this room wrote down his biggest problem, his biggest burden, his biggest need, his biggest heartache, on a piece of paper, and then we collected all those papers and problems and burdens and needs and put them all together, mixed up in a big stack on this table. And then we said, okay, come up to the table, now that all these papers are here, and take home whatever problem, whatever need, whatever burden you want from that stack. I contend most, not all, most though, most people would search to that stack until they found their own problem and take it home. Because there are other people out there who have bigger problems and more difficult situations than we do. 
And those are the facts. To most people, Thanksgiving is considered just another holiday. AAA estimated in the U.S. 53.4 million people traveled to someone's house or another location to celebrate this Thanksgiving. In doing that, we consumed almost 46 million turkeys. Except at our house, we boycotted turkey and had ham, and uh, it was good. Um, The annual New York City's Macy's Thanksgiving Parade hasn't totally recovered from COVID restrictions, and still it attracted some 2.5 million people in actual sidewalk attendance. And then an estimated more than 150 million people went shopping this weekend, especially on Black Friday. Thanksgiving is a major holiday, but it ought to be more than that. It ought to be one of the holiest days. It would be depressing to know the actual number of families that sat down at a table and ate a huge Thanksgiving meal and didn't even bother to pray and thank God for that food. Jesus was grateful for food. In one half of his public prayers that are recorded in the Gospels, Jesus thanked God for food. Hoping I do not eat at a restaurant until first we bow our heads, no matter who is there, no matter who is around us, no matter who sees us, we bow our heads and we thank God for the food that we are about to eat. That's something we do all the time. It's amazing Christians can go into a public place and not thank God for the food. The problem is not that we set aside a specific day to be grateful, because most countries don't even do that. One man from London was asked if Great Britain celebrated a Thanksgiving day. He said, oh, no, no, no. It wouldn't go over there. And sometimes it doesn't go over here. Someone told me about his neighbor, an older embittered woman, who on the surface seemed to be a thankless, ungrateful wretch. He confirmed that assessment when he wished her a happy Thanksgiving, and she responded, get this, she responded, happy Thursday. The problem is not that we set aside a specific day in order to be grateful, but the problem is we limit our thanksgiving to one specific day. We should be grateful 24-7, 365. Thanksgiving should be an ongoing celebration. We should all be more grateful than we are. Listen to this as I close. Thanksgiving should be a time to remember that God gives us so much when we deserve so little. Let's pray. Father, every one of us, I'm convinced, have been guilty at one point or another of ungratefulness. I have, often. Busyness keeps me from stopping and thinking about how blessed I am and it prevents me from offering more gratitude than I do. And I'm sure that all of us have been guilty of that. God, help us to determine in our hearts and minds to be more aware of your blessings and to be more careful to thank you for your goodness to us. I thank you for your word. It has so much 
in the way of practical instruction is so relevant to who we are and to where we live. I just pray, God, that this message will have made an impact in our thinking and will penetrate our hearts, and God will cause us to live this out in our lives. Help us to be a great, grateful people because you've blessed us so much and we deserve so very, very little. Thank you for your goodness. You are a great and good God, and we praise you and thank you for it. And I ask it all in the name of your special son, Jesus. Amen and amen.